0: We are so excited to be launching our second fully crafted season on September 9th and 10th at Webster's Wine Bar, and we want to share that excitement with you. So, for the first time ever, Second Story presents a long form podcast featuring an entire evening of stories as well as a behind the scenes look at how we do what we do.
1: This, this is the Second, second Story Podcast. podcast
0: on this week's Second Story podcast.
1: You never realized the power of your own words.
2: We had the talk. And the truth is how sacred that is.
0: That was the moment. We bring you four stories, orbiting the theme, Staying Alive, Stories of Survival. How do we survive the impossible? And how do we move on after the experiences that shape our lives have passed? These stories answer these questions with the intimate insight that can only come from the individuals who lived through these moments. From a young woman at war with her own body to a friendship threatened by a single instance of not knowing, these stories explore the fight to stay alive. Our first teller of the show is a Chicago-based writer and performer. This was her first performance for Second Story. With a piece titled "Vulvicular Homicide, Second Story presents Robin O'Krompte.
3: Betrayal is a deal-breaker. I'm somewhat flexible when it comes to other character defects and relationship mistakes, but betrayal is where I draw the line. I wasn't born with these high standards. I came to them through what behavioral therapists call experiential learning. (laughs) Example. The year 1996. I discovered a list written by my live-in boyfriend, cataloging all the women he slept with. It was chronological. I was number 86. And while I was cowed by the 85 women who paved his way to our relationship, I was more troubled that the list went to 104. Yes, example, the year 2000. I found out that a man I'd been dating was juggling two other girlfriends. When I called to confront the multitasker, he assured me, if you knew how much I cared about you, you wouldn't be so hurt. Uh, And while that was quite possibly the stupidest thing I'd ever heard, uh, I was only furious with myself for placing my trust in another untrustworthy guy. Three years later, the year 2003... It was the night before my wedding. I quizzed my husband-to-be, what is the one thing I will never ever abide in our marriage? And he answered dutifully, cheating, because trust is a priceless gift that once broken can never be repaired. <laughs> he answered by rote in the same way the brainwashed GI spoke of Raymond Shaw and the Manchurian Candidate. <laughs> My fiance had memorized all the right answers, but had he really absorbed them, I had serious reservations. Overriding my internal alarm bells, I went ahead with our wedding the next morning. And when the rabbi declared us husband and wife, a clock that only I could hear began ticking. The year, 2010. I'd been tossing and turning in bed for several hours. I'm certain you can relate. It is difficult to catch some shut-eye when your loving spouse, the only man with whom you've had sexual interaction for almost a decade, has given you a raging case of herpes. I should backtrack, okay? About 36 hours, okay. I had developed a hot itch down south and I don't mean Louisiana. I was distracted by lady troubles As the high school nurse would have whispered behind closed doors, I knew what to do. I made a B-line, or a V-line, if you will, to Walgreens to pick up a tube of Lady Trouble Ointment. But instead of my symptoms subsiding, the next 24 hours were like a snowball's rapid descent into a giant flaming vagina. I became so uncomfortable that I lost my power of reason, of logic. I began to crack. Desperate for relief, I evaluated every item in my refrigerator as a possible folk remedy for whatever was going down, for whatever was going down in Ladytown. I considered slapping a handful of yogurt between my legs, but we only had blueberry and I didn't want to lose small fruit in my inflamed but precious flower. I needed a better picture of what was happening in my pants, so I ripped them off and squatted over a mirror. What I saw can only be compared to the time I visited the baboon exhibit at the Lincoln Park Zoo during during mating season. The female baboon's genitalia was engorged, wet, purple, red, and kind of lopsided. They waved their lubricated come-hither parts at the males and also smeared them across the glass that separated the animal kingdom from the horrified humans. Yes, right there. Those ladies had to have it. I, on the other hand, had to make this agony stop. My husband came home from work and he asked me what was wrong as I was uncharacteristically twitchy. Nothing, I said in a high-pitched squeak, nervous that the truth would cause him to judge me unclean. After dinner, which I ate standing up, I scooped him a bowl of ice cream and then covertly slipped an ice pack in my underwear for a brief respite. Hours later, we went to bed. As usual, he fell asleep quickly and deeply, and drenched in sweat, I writhed, unable to find a comfortable position. I needed help. I leapt from bed, tore out of the bedroom, and turned to my favorite and trusted alternative healer, the internet. (laughs) I typed my symptoms into Google and turned up millions of results. And too agitated to read, I did an image search instead. Yeah, yeah. that's when I discovered the alarming diagnosis for my red-hot mama. I had escaped unscathed from STDs before I met my husband, so after seven years of marriage and a pledge of fidelity, who could have struck me down with this raging case of herpes? The most feasible culprit was currently snoring on the Tempur-Pedic. I couldn't decide which was worse, the physical torment I'd been suffering or my husband's cheating. Like a diamond, betrayal is forever. And so are herpes. Long after my divorce, I would have a souvenir to eternally remind me that I had an inability to choose a loyal partner. I stalked into that bedroom and I sat on my husband's side of the bed. He looked so angelic when he slept. That's how you know when they're truly evil. when they can sleep without guilt. Feeling the weight of my stare, he woke with a start. Is, uh, is everything okay? He gulped, and I asked in my best Eastwood, circa fistful of dollars, is there anything you want to tell me? He smelled like fear <laughs> and shame, and the part of me that was smoldering and so Swollen was threatening to hulk out and commit vulvicular homicide. <laughs> I have herpes, I hissed. And guess who gave them to me? Jim looked at me wide-eyed. Who? <laughs> Nice try, Romeo. Disgusted, I went into the bathroom and slathered on a cocktail of Neosporin and the gel I brutally extracted from my aloe plant. Jim, now fully awake, came into the bathroom. How do you know you have herpes, he asked. I cited my sources. WebMD, MayoClinic.com, and Wikipedia. That's not definitive, he started. Would you like to see my vagina? I countered, and for the first time since we met, he didn't jump at the chance to visit the land down under. Unbearably uncomfortable, I began to weep. I called my doctor. Her answering service picked up since the offices were closed. I explained to the nice lady on the other end of the line, "Uh, my vagina is on fire because my husband gave me an STD and I need to see my doctor for an emergency visit. Could you repeat that, she asked. It's on fire. (laughs) By the end of the call, she assured me the office would contact me as soon as it opened. Jim slithered back into bed, but there was no way I was gonna lie down next to him. Instead, I went into the living room to view more images of herpes-laden vaginas and watch Matrix Revolutions on my laptop. (laughs) It was a miserable night. As promised, I received a call bright and early. My doctor could fit me in the first thing that morning. I looked at my silent husband. Jim was sipping an espresso, trying to become invisible. I deserved an explanation. Why do I always need supplementation in relationships? Why am I not enough? Instead, I told him, I'm going to the doctor, and you're coming with me. I wanted to be able to look into his eyes when my doctor told me gravely, Robin, you were right. That asshole gave you VD. (laughs) Unsurprisingly, we had an awkward bus ride to the doctor's office. Jim was cold and quiet. When we arrived, the nurse called my name soon after I signed in. You can wait here, she told Jim. Oh, no, 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 no. I informed her he's coming with me. (laughs) Then, then... Jim and I waited in silence until Dr. B popped into the tiny exam room. She seemed to see, surprised to see Jim as, as not many husbands accompany their wives to pelvic exams. I explained the reason for my visit. The cheating, the internet, the blueberry yogurt. She nodded sagely and said, let's take a look, shall we? I uh, swung my feet into the stirrups and the doctor situated herself on a stool. And then she ducked between my legs to get a closer look at Chernobyl. (laughs) Wow, she said, this is awful, a phrase that while pantsless with my legs splayed, I I don't normally want to hear. Herpes? I asked, eyes darting to Jim, who was gritting his teeth. No, no, she said. This is, and my mind filled in the blank chlamydia, crabs, scabies, genital warts, gonorrhea, Hep B, Hep C, HIV, HPV, syphilis, trichomoniasis. What, what, what? This is, she said, by far the worst allergic reaction I've ever seen on someone's genitals. Have you changed your detergent recently? And then I realized, why yes. (laughs) Yes, we did, because the new one was on sale. So we did, And, and it smells like spring rain, right, Jim? And Jim looked at me with, um, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it relief, exactly. I think I'd call it fury. He clearly didn't get it. I wasn't going to have to explain to men I dated in the future that my ex-husband gave me herpes. This was great news. My doc pulled off her latex-free gloves and said she'd be right back with a few prescriptions. And she also advised me to skip online self-diagnosis in the future. <laughs> Relieved, I began to dress. My husband hadn't cheated on me, and then it dawned on me, Jim, I convinced you that I had herpes, so you must have thought that I caught them from cheating on you. Isn't that funny? (laughs) He didn't answer. And in fact, he didn't say a word as we took the elevator to the ground floor, as we stood on the corner for the bus. Oh, I said inspired, do you have to go right to work, or do you want to play hooky, have some coffee? Jim just stared at me. And then he said icily, I need to go to work. And as the bus pulled up to the corner, he added, and I need to be alone. Taken aback, I stepped away as he boarded the bus. As was our custom, I waved to him as it pulled away, but But he didn't wave back. So I stood alone on the corner of Clark and Deming and watched the bus carrying my husband disappear down the street, my yen for a celebratory soy latte souring. I headed, bow-legged, toward the pharmacy to pick up my prescriptions. As I walked, I texted Jim, I'm sorry, but in return I got the silent treatment. So there it was. My marriage's longevity was not tested by my husband's infidelity, but by my innate belief that no man could ever be faithful to me. The power I always thought I wielded to end a relationship without doling out a second chance, without even the consideration of forgiveness, was taken out of my hands and put in his. The automatic doors slid open for me at Walgreens, and I headed back toward the pharmacy, and my cell phone chirped. A text from Jim said, I don't know what to say right now. And my stomach dropped. And then my phone chirped again, and it said, but I love you. And I was flooded with relief for this unexpected reprieve. My second of the morning. Days later, once my rash cleared and my vulva returned to human proportions, (laughs) Jim and I were cuddled up on the couch. What is the one thing I need from you more than anything else, he quizzed me. Complete trust, I answered, because without it, our marriage has no foundation or future. Jim nodded, satisfied, and wrapped me so tightly in his arms. And the truth is, the truth is I do trust him now with like uh, like 96% of my heart. But baby, I love you with all of it.
0: I sat down with Robin in her beautiful apartment on the northwest side of Chicago to ask her how her story was received by the Second Story audience.
3: I was approached a lot afterwards, and um, a lot of people said I was really uh, brave, which was really funny because to me, I think, Uh, you know, I think they were saying that I was brave to tell the story. I was thinking, wow, the hero is really Jim here. I'm not, I'm not the one who should be applauded. And actually a lot of people, what I noticed was a lot of people approached Jim afterwards, which I thought was hilarious and pat him, you know, pat him on the back. Like, you're a good man, you're a good man. But, um, but a lot of people told me um, that they also, Experienced the crazies in certain relationships, you know. Um, you know, no one really said, "Ah, oh, yes, I've had that experience." But um, I think people, um, it resonated with um, a lot of audience members. Um, and then there were some people who didn't make eye contact with me on the way out, <laughs> so there was that too. But for the most part, I think um, it, you know, I was just really, really pleased because people seemed touched by it. My husband and I are telling a dual story um, uh, for the Valentine's Day show. So um, so yes, I'm very excited about that. And he's probably very, very excited to uh, you know be able to put his voice in instead of me always talking
0: about him. You can check the Second Story website for more information on the Valentine's Day show or any other shows in our upcoming 2012-2013 season at secondstory.com. I met with our next teller, Jennifer Shin, in a North Center Starbucks. She's an actress by trade and has been involved with Second Story for over three years. We talked about the hurdles she encountered in telling a difficult personal story.
2: Even some of my closest friends, I hadn't told that I'd been raped. Like, I didn't tell the story a lot. And so, uh, it was, I was, when I, even when I was reading it, I was like, I cannot believe I'm going to say this in public. Uh, and so a lot of it was just... Uh, Every time we met them saying, it's okay, just put it down on paper, it's okay to say it. And um, like living those things again was also difficult. Yeah. I, like I didn't sleep the night before uh, the we performed because I, I was so still, I like, kind of ashamed and I was still terrified of, I'm really going to put this out in public. And I knew a lot of my friends had said, oh, we're coming, we're going to come to see you. So I knew that I'd have a lot of friends that I didn't tell this to. So even, and I was so nervous that when we went to Webster's Wine Bar, I looked and I realized I forgot a page in my script at home. And so I had to run to Kinko's like an hour before the show, I'm like.
0: With a piece titled Arrow Lunge, Second Story presents Jen Shin.
2: They're lying over blood red bolsters, looking nothing so much like carnage, the aftermath of a bloodbath. Knees stacked to the right, arms spread-eagled on either side in surrender. I lead my restorative yoga class through breathing exercises. Next inhale, I say, feel breath into genitals, perineum, anus, the way your sit bones widen away from each other. It's a big class that day, 23 students, I move them into pigeon pose, right foot forward, bent at the knee, left leg extended long behind them. One thing that really fascinates me the more I practice, I say, is how all our experiences are carried in our bodies. Any experience, whether joyful or traumatic, is carried in our body. It's literally muscle memory. I pause, walk to a student. I put my hands on the center of their back, draw the heel of my right palm up, the heel of my left palm down. And watch her breath deepen. And her torso melt into the bolster. I'm a yoga teacher. I'm a yoga teacher that doesn't understand my body. When I was 14, I was diagnosed with Turner Syndrome. It's a defect in my chromosomes that means I have to be on hormone replacement therapy. I have to take a pill every day of my life to get my period. I'll probably never be able to get pregnant. I have a great deal of insecurity. This condition makes me feel not like a woman. Like some inadequate facsimile trying to mimic real women. And I'm in the studio filled with beautiful and, to my eyes, perfect women. And all I see is what I'm not. Isn't that horrible? (laughs) Because if you think yoga teachers are these perfect, serene people who never feel any jealousy, Oh, you are so wrong. (laughs) Because I see a room of these long, lean limbs, and I'm here to tell you my jealousy rages. (laughs) It just rages. But I digress. Hips. Hips are a mystery to me. Because of my Turner syndrome, I never really dated or slept with anyone when I was younger. I was too insecure about my body. Then, when I started college, I was raped. I just interviewed at Kingston Mines and I was hired on the spot as a cocktail waitress. I was broke. I'd been looking for a job for a really long time. So, relieved to finally be employed, I went to the bar next door to celebrate. This boy I met bought me a drink and he put something in it because everything after that drink is a blur. I vaguely remember scrawling my signature on a receipt as the bartender gave me a disgusted look and then walking out with this boy into a cab. And the next thing I remember was waking up on his bed in his apartment, him on top of me. I just remember flashes, glimpses of his face, a tattoo on his chest, before I blacked out again. And the next thing I remember was being outside on some steps, vomiting. And that was the first time I had sex. It was humiliating and degrading. It made me feel stupid and dirty and cheap. Hips. It's the reason why, in my own practice, if we do a hip opening sequence, sometimes I'll start having a breakdown. I have my students switch to pigeon on the other side. There's a student in the back of the room, her whole body's shaking, she's hyperventilating. I walk over, I put both my hands on her left hip. Just breathe. Into my hands, I say, and I breathe with her. I watch her breath steady and balloon under my hands. I reach over, grab a tissue box, and I put it next to her. I'm sorry, she mumbles. No, no, don't be sorry. I think back to when I was diagnosed. My doctor had put me on Premarin, an estrogen hormone replacement pill, and said very coolly that I'd get to mimic real women. And that always stuck with me. When I got my first drug-induced period at age 15, I remember thinking, well... The blood feels real. It only very recently hit me what that meant. Going through puberty, getting your period, getting to bitch with your friends about your period, (laughs) having your first, even second child. Most of these rites of passage that most women would take for granted. These things that for some reason have been denied me. These things most women don't give a second thought about. And I wonder why I'm deficient. I wonder what's wrong with me. Who could possibly ever love me? I remember the day we had a very intense forest yoga practice. I was 26, I was just starting to date someone, and I kept pulling away and avoiding him every time we started to get intimate. I didn't know how to tell him about my Turner Syndrome. I kept wondering, I mean, isn't it obvious? Isn't it clear something's wrong with me? Can't you tell? And the truth was, I hadn't dated much. It was over a year since I dated anyone, and I was still so horribly uncomfortable in my body. I was so self-conscious about my stomach, my former and still vaguely anorexic body. So the idea of being naked with someone, the idea of sex, it filled me with anxiety. And I didn't know how to tell him about any of this. I thought if I did, he'd leave me. I thought it was a miracle I was dating anyone in the first place. So I'm in this forest yoga class. And we're in arrow lunge, which is like lunge pose except on fucking steroids. And Gwen, my teacher, comes up to me and she starts tractioning my hip. And I feel this burning like lava running through my hip and my quad. There's this shaking I can't control. And this deep sadness wells up, this flood of... Fuck this, I hate my body. Why can't I have a normal sex life? They never caught the guy who raped me. That's why I'm freaking out when you touch me. How am I supposed to tell you about that and about my Turner syndrome and how fucked up and crazy am I gonna seem to you then? And then of course you're just gonna leave me and then go run screaming out the door and goddamn it, fuck you, fuck it all. I can't handle this shit anymore. All of that, in like one second, it wells up and there's this tightening through my chest. It's hard to breathe and suddenly I'm sobbing in the middle of class in the middle of fucking arrow lunge, (laughs) and I can't stop. And as embarrassed as I am, as much as I want to, I can't stop. My teacher, Gwen, very calmly reaches over, puts a box of tissues next to me, completely unfazed, without skipping a beat. She continues to call out her cues, give verbal adjustments to the students, but she keeps her hands on my hip, and she helps me breathe until I stop hyperventilating. And so back in my restorative class, I see this woman in the back of class breaking down and I feel what it's like when it's my turn to get to hold space for someone. How sacred that is. So I hand her some tissues, I stay with her a while as I continue my cues. Soon the class ends. Students put away the blankets and bolsters and blocks, the whole mess of props, and everyone begins to leave the room. Except that one lady. She's still sitting there quietly. How are you feeling? I ask. Mm, I'm a little dizzy. Well, there's no rush. You want to lie down for a while? Can I? She lies down. I sit beside her and I hold her head in my hands. And her breaths start to sink. And slowly, I work my fingers around the occipital and along the back of her neck. I feel her body soften. I place my thumbs between her eyebrows and apply pressure. I move them out towards her temples along those twin worry lines, those deep furrows that I see there. And she's crying now, quietly, but there's tears streaming down her cheeks. And I sit quietly with her, her head in my hands until it subsides. Later, in the front lobby of the studio, she gets herself some water from the water cooler. She steps into her shoes, and before she leaves, gives me a hug. Thank you so much. Sure. The elevator shuts behind her. Jesus Christ, I think. Our bodies are a battleground, a dangerous minefield. Next week, I'm back at the studio, teaching my restorative class. They're lying over blood-red bolsters, looking nothing so much like carnage, like the aftermath of a bloodbath. I walk to my students, put my hands on their ribs. Here, I say, breathe here, here where it's closed, here where it's tight, here where it's broken, here where it hurts. Breathe. Just breathe. Here.
0: second story exists to host the ritual of shared stories, and it's not uncommon for audience members to have unique, powerful reactions to the stories that we share.
2: I had a woman who found me on Facebook, and who I didn't know, and she's like, I just want to tell you, thank you so much for your story, because I went through something like that, and uh, thank you for like, putting my story out there too, which was incredible. Um, Part of the story, I also talk about how I have this condition, it's called Turner Syndrome. Uh, But what was amazing was this woman was in the audience who also had Turner Syndrome. She happened to be there. And so she said, thank you so much, because I never had anyone talk about that. Like, thank you for telling your story, because now I know that I'm not the only one.
0: Second Story is an organization with roots in the literary and theatrical traditions, and is steeped in collaboration at every level of creation. One of the vital roles in each second story performance is the role of a curator, an individual who leads the storytellers in the writing process, ensuring that the work breathes and flows on the page before we ask the tellers to perform. I've talked with two second story curators, C.P. Chang and Bobby Bedriskie, on the curation process.
4: The line that we use is that the curator is the artistic director for the event. Their primary
5: task is to develop the stories to a place
4: on the page where they can then be lifted off the page. Help them discover the best story that they can tell. So a large part of the development process
5: takes place in small group with the storytellers and the curator leading them in a drafting process
4: where they are all working on drafts and bringing them in and reading to each other. And you get laughs out of the other stories or people ask questions afterwards saying, I didn't understand why the sister did this thing or who was this person or how old were you when this happened? So questions come out from your from your first audience and that helps the storyteller develop their stories. And that goes on for about two months. I like to say making sure that everything is kind of second story stamped and approved. But for each individual storyteller... It'll, it'll be almost a personal relationship because um, you might have a person saying, I need a little help. And I, as curator, will field questions over email or in phone calls if somebody says, I'm really struggling with this scene or I don't know how to talk about this part of my past in the present tense. And you can work with them one-on-one.
0: Um, so. Second So, Story just completed its first fully crafted season of stories themed Know Thyself. I asked Bobby and CP about the exciting challenges wrought by curating works not only for specific shows, but for a season theme as well. Last year
5: was our first time, and we we went to our mission, vision, and values, and we chose the theme Know Thyself with the idea that one can't really be of service to their community or to the ones they love without knowing themselves very well first. This year is a call to action and it's very much
4: kind of the next step in that process. Once you know yourself. A call to action requires you that you know who you are that when in this moment where you have to make a choice and make a decision hey you have to be grounded in who you are. That was the idea you know find these moments when people were called to action what were these moments and experiences that moved people to act on certain things. In one of our examples, sometimes you're not – one of the stories, sometimes you're not grounded in who you are, and sometimes you take a misstep, take a bad mistake, make a bad mistake. We take something
5: like a call to action, and then we break apart all the different ways an individual or a group of people might be called to action. And then – and, you know, this started last November you know, or December when we started distributing the ideas around uh, all these different ways one can be called to action out to our company – out to our collective, out to our season ensemble members,
4: out to the larger second story community and said, what do you guys got? When you get four people in a room telling stories, the style of the story, the tenor of the stories will sort of influence each other. And that takes this singular theme and sort of like allows it to um, expand in dimensions.
5: If one were to attend one show, it could be a standalone conversation about a call to action. If one were to attend three shows out of the season, they might see that conversation evolving on what it means to be called to action. And if you were you know, lucky enough to attend every show, all 10 shows in the season, I think that you would see a very clear um, through line and a very interesting conversation around what it means to be called to action.
0: We at Second Story would love to hear your voice in this conversation. Second Story is a permeable, evolving organization, always embracing new voices, exciting collaborators, and fresh eyes and ears. We can only create conversation and build community through stories if there are energetic artists and audiences involved in the process. To join the conversation, visit secondstory.com. Our third teller of the podcast is Second Story Company member Darwin Jones. I asked him about the inspiration behind his story.
6: The story is about um, the concept of having a father after you've grown, out, grown up not having a father, basically. So it's about that relationship with somebody uh, and all the expectations
0: you put on that person.
6: Not only having expectations for him, Mm -hmm. but then suddenly turning the mirror towards yourself and saying, what expectations does he have of me?
0: Telling his story, I'll dance at your wedding. Second Story presents Darwin Jones.
6: This was the way he bargained. It would be, give me a cup of coffee and I'll dance at your wedding. Mow the lawn and I'll dance at your wedding. Keep quiet in church, and I'll dance at your wedding. There was really no bargain to it. But I did what he wanted anyway. See, for the first 10 years of my life, I didn't have a dad. But then, Mom married Bob. Suddenly, I had this image of a father doling out hugs and healthy doses of sage advice, like Mr. Brady or John Boy's dad. And I wanted that. So I had to do my part. I got him a cup of coffee. I mowed the lawn. I kept quiet in church. I figured as long as I was a good kid, he'd stick around. I was watching Pillow Talk one day. You know, the Doris Day Rock Hudson movie, (laughs) where she's a beautiful career girl, and he's a footloose bachelor, and they share a telephone line, and they absolutely despise each other until he starts pretending that he's a southern gent, and then she starts loving him in real life, but then still hating him over the phone. And the whole time, Tony Randall was like, rolling his eyes and looking worried. So I'm watching the movie, and Bob comes in, says, hey, let me watch the ball game, and I'll dance at your wedding. And although Doris Day was starting to suspect that the southern gent Rock Hudson, whom she loved, was actually the footloose bachelor Rock Hudson, whom she hated, I let him change the channel. Bob was a Cards fan, and although I wasn't in the least bit interested, I'd watch with him. Until he came around, I had no interest in sports. Admittedly, while so-and-so slid into home or what's-his-name hit a foul ball, my mind tended to focus on one thing. Would this game be over in time for me to find out if Rock Hudson's philandering ways could be stopped by the pure girlies charm of Doris Day? (laughs) Now, this was back in the day when televisions didn't have remote controls. That's why people had children. So at one point, Bob, having a hard time hearing the announcer, leaned forward and said, turn it up, and I'll dance at your wedding. And although I'd heard it a thousand times before, this time I started laughing because I'd never actually pictured what that would be like to see Bob dance. No. Two things you have to understand. One, Bob was a blue-collar, no-nonsense kind of guy, short stocky and usually stained with oil up to his elbows from working on cars all day and two when i thought of dancing the only real context i had came from movies movies starring fred astaire or shirley temple so when i imagined bob dancing i pictured him with a tux and a top hat tap dancing from one side of a great ballroom to the other of course i was laughing I'm going to make you keep your promise, I said. There will be a whole part of my wedding just for your dance with a spotlight and everything. Bob grinned. Well, I'll worry about that when the time gets here, squirt. You don't even have a girlfriend yet. He was right. I was severely aware of that fact. See, things were changing at school. Before, I had a routine. Lunch with Becky, where she'd always share her Twinkies or her oatmeal cream pies, and then Recess hanging out with Curtis and Doug. We'd sneak down to the creek, kick off our shoes, roll up our pants, and try to catch as many crawdads as we could before class started again. But then, Becky started sitting at Tim Womble's table and he started getting the other half of her desserts. And Recess got screwed up because Melissa Finster started following us down to the creek. Curtis and Doug acted all girl crazy around her, So when Melissa decided that crawdads were gross, they started following her around, taking turns pushing her on the swings and stuff like that. That was gross. So yeah, I was very aware that I didn't have a girlfriend, but I didn't need one. I had my bike, I had my books, Mm -hmm. I had board games. I was good. (laughs) I looked back at the television, at the baseball game, And I tried to focus on what inning they were in or how many strikes the batter had, but I couldn't. I kept thinking about my girl problems, and I wondered, what would Rock Hudson do? (laughs) Then I had it. I'm gonna marry Doris Day, I said. (laughs) Doris Day. Now, Bob looked confused, which confused me. I mean, what's wrong with Doris Day? Why her, Bob asked. Well, she's pretty, and she can sing Coletso while she does the dishes. (laughs) Or sing Que Sera sera at backyard barbecues. Que sera, Sera Yeah, you know, whatever will be, will be. Bob quietly looked back toward the television. I knew Doris Day was wrong somehow, but I didn't know why. When a commercial came on, he went to the side table where my mom kept all of her magazines. He rummaged through, and then he pitched one my way. What about her? Anne Margaret was on the cover. Well, I said, she's pretty, but her singing comes across kind of forced. (laughs) Her singing? Who cares about her singing? Look at those. He pointed, and my eyes followed his finger. And for just a split second, I thought he meant her outfit. (laughs) Her top, in particular. I mean, it was blue and glittery and tight and low, and suddenly I knew he didn't mean her top. (laughs) Look at those lungs, boy. Oh, yeah, I said. I got that feeling that I sometimes had hanging out with my friends like I was doing something wrong, like I wasn't fitting in. So I did what I always did when that feeling crept in. I took a step back. I tried to blend. I went stealth. The last thing you want when you're feeling different was to bring attention to yourself. I don't remember the rest of the ball game or if I, got, or if I caught the last of the movie or not, but I remember a few weeks later, Bob asked me to go clean up the garage, which was weird. Usually, we were told to stay out of there. But I went. Right there on the tool counter sat another magazine, a Playboy. It was just a moment, my Doris Day moment, but it shifted things. Bob had figured it out. I hadn't yet, but he had. And almost immediately, this father-son thing became an arms length transaction. Now, it's not as if he suddenly became the evil stepfather or anything like that. Life is a lot more complicated than what fairy tales or lifetime television for women would have us believe. No, Bob's a great guy. In high school, I joined the drama club, go figure. And although Bob had never been to a play in his life, and I'm sure would have rather been going to baseball games, he attended each and every one. I actually looked forward to them. When I graduated, he had said that he was going to miss seeing my plays. And when I was in college, I had this junky Aries K car that was always giving me trouble, so I was constantly calling Bob. Our conversations consisted of me imitating the noise my car was making, and Bob, relying on my abilities to replicate those sounds, pinpointing whatever mechanical problem was causing it. It was like the lamest game show you have ever invented. (laughs) And if I was successful in that imitation, the only thing I won was a lecture on how often a car needed an oil change or that those little warning lights actually require action. <laughs> Once, the car had completely broken down and Bob had to travel three hours to take a look himself. While he was there, he mentioned the girls on campus. He called them co-eds. He was all wink-wink, nudge-nudge about it, but the comments fell flat for both of us. Eventually, I graduated from college. After I'd become a little more comfortable in my own skin, we had the talk. It was brief. I told him and my mom, and he said, I remember it clearly, because we were on the front porch. He was looking out over the yard, which they called Our Little Acre. My mom was sitting next to him, wiping her eyes with Kleenex. But Bob just gazed forward, Till finally he reached up, he rubbed his chin, and he said, I always knew. And that was that. We never talked about it again. Eventually, I started dating someone, and it came time for everyone to meet. I called my mom to tell her I was coming home, and she was excited. She was always excited when I was coming home. But then I told her I was bringing someone. And there was that nervous pause, but I pushed. She almost shut down completely. Mom, what? Well, I don't know what Bob's going to think. Another long pause. We'll have to put you in separate bedrooms. Now, I have older siblings. I'd heard the nobody sleeps together under this roof unless they're married rule recited on more than one occasion. And it would have been easy to chalk this up as mom just enforcing that rule, but she usually didn't cover it over the phone. I was surprised that she would even address it. I mean, I've been navigating these waters my whole life. I knew what to do in order to fit in, in order to be the good kid. I tiptoed around subjects. I avoided bringing attention to myself. I went stealth. When I was 27, I got married. The room was full. During the ceremony, I looked out into the faces, my mom, my sisters and brothers, my nieces and nephews, a ton of friends. And I thought of Bob's, I thought back to Bob's way of bargaining. I'll dance at your wedding. That's what he had said. But he didn't dance. He didn't even show up. Was I disappointed? Yeah. Was I hurt? Sure. Was I mad? No. I mean, that Doris Day moment still hovers between us, but he's my dad. Besides, who else is going to remind me to get my oil changed?
0: That was Darwin Jones. Now see if you can spot his voice on our next segment. In preparation for our second fully crafted season, we asked the Second Story Collective to define our season theme, a call to action. Here's what they came up with.
1: A call to action. Definition. It's really hard. One. No.
3: It is the moment when you decide that change is necessary and you need to be the person to make that change. Two. the.
6: It's an acknowledgement of social consciousness and the greater community.
3: It's a verb. Get up. Stand up. Noun.
6: Verb? Noun. A noun.
3: It's an adverb, right? It's a verb.
2: Call um, to action.
3: It means making a sacrifice Damn on behalf of someone
2: else. The moment one recognizes a way in which they can be of service to the community first season was about introspection and getting to know ourselves, and now the next step is this call to action, manifesting the things that we've thought about and taking things to the next level, doing things better, more thoroughly, more thoughtfully, involving more people and involving them in a deeper way. And I see it as um, being that person that you can you feel you're you're totally capable of Doing something, and so you answer that call and you act. On
6: it. The point when your desire for change overwhelms all other concerns in your life. Taking a risk. Doing the thing that no one else was willing to do.
2: A call to action is remembering that you're a part of a community greater than yourself and doing something about that. Can I swear? Yeah. A call to action is when you get off your ass and you do something. Okay, a call to action now. It's that feeling you feel in your gut when you know you can do better and then you do it.
0: Our last story is a co-written and co-performed piece by two Second Story veterans, Bobby Badriski and Megan Stielstra. Second Story's unique collaboration and process allows for exciting experiments in storytelling form, including attempts at tandem storytelling. This project brought up interesting questions about story ownership and who has the right to tell what.
1: He'll probably say that it started with me.
5: And it was actually Megan Steelstra who came to me and asked me if um, I would tell the story with her. Because
1: it didn't feel like it was my story. It felt like it was Bobby's story.
5: And it's Um, funny because as we wrote it, I kind of thought of it as her story.
1: In order to explain what I was going through, there was necessary information that needed to be told about what happened to him.
5: But I think that speaks to the fact that it really is our story.
1: It's a story that on his end, he's told over and over and over. It's part of his recovery story.
5: It's a story that I've literally told hundreds of times.
1: I'm going to wager that he will answer this question by saying that um, I needed his permission to go there. I needed him to.
5: And uh, so I realized that I kind of just had to go there first. But they're not they're not tough things for me to say. They're the truth.
0: Telling their joint story titled Beyond Everything Else. Second Story presents Megan Steelstra and Bobby Padriskie.
5: First off, I think it's important for you to know that this is not a story about endings, although there will be talk of endings, and that this is not a story about addiction, although there will be lots of talk about addiction, and that this is definitely not a story about suicide, although there will also be talk of suicide. Because most importantly, beyond all the things I just mentioned and beyond just about everything else, this is a story about miracles.
1: It's October 2009, the last night of Second Story's very first West Coast tour. I was sitting alone on the back patio of the Bookwalter Vineyard in Washington State, drinking a hot-off-the-presses Pinot Noir out of a very fancy glass, which for some reason always makes the wine taste better. Behind me, inside Bookwalter's jam-packed wine bar, I heard Seeking Wonderland, Second Story's house band, and the happy tipsy chatter of our post-show audience. We kicked ass that night. We kicked ass all three nights, opening the Wordstock Lit Festival in Portland, and then two sold-out shows on the vineyard, surrounded on all sides by grapes, and above us, stars. You can never really see them from the city, but out there, it was one of those moments where you understand how enormous the world really is. That's when Bobby sat down next to me. He's a storyteller. He's also my friend. He is also, I had recently learned, learned in fact one week earlier, the day before we flew to Portland, an alcoholic. Friends of ours listening to this tonight might wonder how I didn't know. How I didn't see. I have asked myself this same question a thousand times and every answer sucks. I didn't want to see. I was too busy to see. Maybe we weren't that close. Maybe we never hung out at night. Maybe he didn't even care what I thought, and he damn sure didn't want to change. At least not until that last night of our tour, when he sat down next to me under the stars. He was holding a drink. After the week we had just had, he had the nerve to sit down next to me holding a glass of fucking wine. I I looked at it. Not at him, just the glass. And you know what he said? He said... I'm done. He held it up, studying the contents like a map.
5: I'm not going to drink anymore.
1: Maybe some of you have heard these words before. Hell, maybe some of you have said them. Last drink ever? Right. That'd be a fucking miracle.
5: So where do I begin a story about miracles? Well, this one starts at the bottom. In October 2009, I was suicidal. That Tuesday morning before we left for Portland, I found myself standing on a train platform in Edgewater, ready to die. This didn't happen overnight. I'd been struggling for years with depression, anxiety, and a long time addiction to drugs and alcohol. A close friend had died the year before I'd found him in the apartment we shared, and the image of his dead body was burned into my mind. Life had been getting progressively hazy, but right then, standing on that train platform, life was beyond hazy. Life was pitch black.
1: That same morning, I woke up to the voicemails. Bobby didn't show up for rehearsal. He didn't show up for our meeting. He didn't show up to teach his morning class, and no one knew where he was. In 24 horribly short hours, I was supposed to get on a plane with Bobby, three other storytellers, and a nine-piece band. Our artistic director, Amanda, had gone to Portland ahead to, to rent cars, and before she'd left, she'd said, Just promise me you will get all of them on the plane, in their seats, belts fastened. If I could find Bobby, I'd belt him to the fucking wings.
5: I'd been on a three day drug and alcohol bender brought on by increasing anxiety attacks, or had I been coming off a three day anxiety attack brought on by drugs and alcohol? When dealing with these two afflictions, it's often hard to tell which is which. Those of you out there that have battled any or all of these issues would probably agree that suicide is always an option. For me, though, it was usually a ways down the line. Like, if this, 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 or this doesn't work out, then I can always just kill myself. I know, it sounds grim, but when you live with it for long enough, it just becomes your reality. But that day before we left for Portland, suicide was no longer plan E, F, or G. Suicide was plan A. Ish. I'd been staying with Amanda, our artistic director, and her boyfriend Nick, and that morning when I left their condo, I was pretty sure that I was going to kill myself.
1: By the time our friend Julia called, I was wrecked. Did you hear from Bobby? We said at the same time. No, we said at the same time. And then, cautiously, she asked if I had keys to Amanda's. At the time, I ran workshops for Second Story out of her and Nick's living room. Sure, I told Julia, I have keys. And, and then she said it. You know what this weekend is, right? And suddenly, none of it mattered. Who cared about our stupid tour, our stupid stories? The year before, almost to the date, Bobby had walked into his friend's bedroom and found him dead. And now, Bobby was missing. And the only one with the keys was me.
5: Standing on that train platform? Standing
1: in front of Bobby's bedroom door?
5: I wasn't scared. I was
1: so scared.
5: I actually felt kind of calm. I'd
1: already looked everywhere else in the house. The the living room, dining room, kitchen, bedroom two offices, five closets, walk-in pantry, behind two shower curtains, sunroom back porch garage, each step an attempt to avoid the bedroom, because honestly- I
5: still hadn't decided if I was gonna do it. If though. he was
1: gonna do it, that would be the place. I
5: mean, you don't decide until you decide, right? I reached for the doorknob. The tracks started to rumble. It was kind
1: of like watching a movie. They were
5: getting louder. When
1: you already know what's gonna happen. The train
5: got closer. And you yell,
1: no, don't do it, at the characters like they can hear you.
5: And as the train pulled into the station, I had this thought. Nick and Amanda just purchased the condo I was living in. If I killed myself here on these L tracks a block away, they would never escape that. It would ruin their home, their neighborhood, their lives. Now, there are probably a million ways to psychoanalyze that thinking process, but in the moment, it was just a fact. I can't kill myself here. Nick and Amanda live here. I have to do this somewhere else.
1: I opened the door.
5: I boarded the train. And
1: what I saw was an empty room. And you'd think I'd have felt relieved then. But the thing about suicide is that once you've decided, you've decided. There are a million bedrooms in this city. A thousand L-Tracks. I sat on Bobby's bed for a really long time, and and then I left a voicemail. Please, just just call me. I love you.
5: When I arrived at 95th Street, as far south as the red line goes, I checked my phone. I had it on silent, and when I looked, it was full of messages and texts. I picked it up, and I heard a voicemail from Megan.
1: Please, just call me. I love you.
5: If there's a moment I decided I wasn't going to kill myself, at least... Not right then, and at least not on that train. That was the moment.
1: You never realize the power of your own words. Please just call me. I love you.
5: And within seconds of making that decision, I went directly to a bar and got blackout drunk.
1: The next morning, face to face at the airport, my words were not quite so nice. I yelled a lot about the money our organization had sunk into this trip, about the students he had left standing in the hallway, and about me standing in front of his bedroom door and how I would never get those minutes of my life back. Have any of you ever tried to talk shop with an alcoholic? He didn't hear a word I said.
5: That word, alcoholic, haddock, started to come at me from everywhere. Within an hour of landing in Portland, I got a call from the college where I teach telling me I was suspended. My friends weighed in on my voicemail and to my face, and finally my longtime therapist B, a woman who I trusted more than anyone on the planet, called long distance to say that she had seen enough. You're an alcoholic and a drug addict. This is my diagnosis. I sat on this park bench outside our hotel, listening to her lay it out for me. She would no longer treat me for depression or anxiety. No more medications would be prescribed, no more letters written to employers on my behalf. She would not be my doctor if I did not go to rehab. I couldn't believe it. Through tears and maybe some screams, I told her that she was breaking our trust, that I was not going to rehab and she was gonna keep treating me or I would sue her for malpractice. When she held strong, I told her to stay out of my life forever, and then I hung up. Sat on the bench, crying for a little while, right up until our tour manager called, telling me it was time to head to the theater. My heart nearly stopped. I hadn't thought about performing in days. I mean, I knew the piece, but I wasn't sure I could actually get up on stage and do it.
1: He got up on stage and fucking brought the house down. The show was at the Baghdad, this old, beautiful theater with a huge balcony, seats around 500, I'd guess, and that night it was packed for the opening night of Wordstock. When Bobby performed, the crowd went crazy.
5: Honestly, I don't remember any of that.
1: (laughs) His story was about sitting in a strip club and seeing, on the pole, dancing, the first girl he ever slept with. (laughs) Right? He was 15 years old so in love with her and and get this, she asks him to get her pregnant so she could trap her boyfriend. And Bobby did it. He slept with her.
5: She was so beautiful.
1: It's also important to know that Bobby grew up Catholic.
5: And the only way you get to have sex when you're Catholic is for procreation.
1: Anyhow, it was this crazy, awkward, improbable situation. But, but right at the end of the story, Bobby asks the audience, he asks us to consider how a simple blip in the matrix
5: my sperm not connecting with her egg
1: allowed his life to instead diverge. Now, I've heard Bobby tell this story about a thousand times. And every single time that line takes me right out of the strip club and into my own life, how a simple blip in the matrix allows our lives to diverge. A, a blip, and I moved to Chicago. A blip, and I meet my husband. A, a blip, and I'm sitting here in this chair tonight with all of you, but, but back then, sitting in the balcony at the Baghdad Theater watching 500 people hanging on Bobby's every word, I, I wondered if that moment for him could be one of those blips.
5: The next morning we drove two hours to Bookwalter Vineyard in Washington State and did two more shows on consecutive nights. Most of that was also a blur, until the last night of the tour, when I sat down next to Megan, drinking her hot off the presses Pinot Noir out of a very fancy glass. And it was there, staring out over acres and acres of grapes, that it happened. Call it a spiritual experience or the hand of God or the universe or whatever you like, But I had a moment. It happened this fast. One minute, I very much believed that I would drink forever. And the next, I knew I was done.
1: Have you ever been in the presence of a miracle?
5: It was like remembering
1: something. I I didn't know it at the time, of course. Where I'd
5: left my keys. At the
1: time, I doubted every word that came out of his mouth. Or a book I'd hidden somewhere. But now, three years later...
5: It was...
1: After watching him every day slay dragons so huge and deadly and terrifying, they they could level this city.
5: I turned to Megan, stunned by the words that were about to fall out of my mouth. I said, I'm done.
1: He held up the glass, studying the contents like a map.
5: I'm not going to drink anymore.
1: And then he put it down. We sat there, watching the stars, all these little tiny blips in the matrix. In the city, you can never really see them, but but out there, it was one of those moments where you understand how miraculous this world really is.
0: This podcast was brought to you by Amanda Delheimer-Diamond, Andrew Riley, Bobby Vadrisky, Deb Lewis, Jessica Hutchinson, Nick Kawahara, Nick Ward, Mikhail Fixel, Eric Hazen, Danielle Ezel, and myself. For more information about Second Story, including information about our 2012-2013 season, A Call to Action, how to get involved with Second Story, or details about any of the storytellers featured in this podcast, please visit secondstory.com. That's 2ndstory.com. I'm Ozzie Totten, and this is Second Story.